Father God, please help us now to understand your word well. Uh, help us all to be comforted and challenged by it as we reflect on the firm foundation that you are in us living our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now friends, I'm not a builder or the son of a builder and so I realise I'm on shaky ground with what I'm going to talk about but I reckon the things we've been discovering over the past few weeks in Proverbs seems to me that building a life, according to Proverbs, building a life is a bit like building a house. In the sense that when you build a house, there are certain things that you've just got to get right, aren't there? There's stuff that you can't afford to make a mistake with. On the other hand, there are other things that aren't quite so critical. You can have a bit of flexibility, exercise some personal choice over it. For example, the sorts of things that you've got to get right when you build a house, the sort of things you can't make a mistake with are things like the foundations, laying the slab, or the framework that you put up on it, uh, the weight-bearing beams, uh, the timber, the steel, the trusses. They're the sort of things that you've just got to get them right, otherwise the house will come down. But then after you've done all of that, once you've got the foundations and the framework set there, well, the rest is sort of up to you, isn't it? And you can have brick veneer or you can have weatherboard. You can have a tile roof, you can have a tin roof, you can have a blue house, you can have a red house. In one sense, it doesn't matter. And sure, look, there are certain choices that are more sensible than others. I mean, if you build a house in Dubbo with low ceilings, tin roof, no insulation, no air conditioning, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're going to cook in summer, but you could do it. It's not as if the house will come down. It's just not a sensible choice. Now, friends, that process of building, that's pretty much what Proverbs has been telling us about building a life. There's certain things that you've got to get right, there's certain th- but there are other things you can have a little bit of flexibility over. You've got to get the foundation right. And Proverbs has been telling us that the foundation to build a life in on is to fear the Lord. And then built on top of that foundation is a framework that you've also got to get right. It's a framework of righteousness and love and faithfulness and justice and personal integrity. It's a framework that flows directly out of fearing the Lord and it's got to be there for the life to stay up. But then you see, just like our house, once that's all in place, you've got a fair bit of flexibility in how you live the rest of your life, really. And Proverbs has provided us with lots of helpful observations about regularities of life so that we can make some sensible decisions along the way. But really, there's a fair bit of flexibility. And throughout that, and throughout Proverbs, that's pretty much what we've been seeing about how to build a life. And last week, we thought of it in terms of foundation, obligation, observation. Now, friends, I'm reminding you of all of this because today, Proverbs takes a bit of a change in tact. Uh, Proverbs in the last couple of chapters starts to do something a little bit different in that it provides us with some case studies of people who have built their lives this way. Uh, People from whom we can learn from their examples. To push the house building thing, it's as if Proverbs now gives us a few display homes to walk through, to look over, to notice how they've done things, to get some ideas from them. In the last chapter, in the reading that we just heard, there were two display lives that were put before us. It's actually the first one that I'd like 
to pay our, most of our attention to, and it's really the first dozen verses of that display home as, as well. It's the case study involving a fellow named Agur. Verse 1. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacar, an oracle. Now, this morning I want to do something that I don't normally do, and that is I want to suggest that that's not probably a very good translation in the NIV, which is what most of us have. I don't like doing that because the NIV is usually a fantastic translation, but I'm wondering whether in this case uh, we're better off going with the footnote version that is probably down the bottom of your page in the NIV, which says that instead of the sentence being Agur, son of Jacob, an oracle, it's probably better to read it as Jacob, uh, sorry, Agur, son of Jacob of Massa. Massa being a place name, uh, a town in northern Arabia. Now stay with me here. Let me offer you a couple of reasons why that's a better option. Firstly, to translate the original word as oracle would be very unusual. Uh, oracle is a word that usually gets bandied around about prophets. An oracle is the saying that a prophet gives. And so it pops up in books like uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. And even though it's not impossible that that could be its meaning here, it would be a very, very unique case of that word popping up in a wisdom book like Proverbs. Alternatively, if we go with the other place name of Massa, suddenly a whole lot of things drop into place. Uh, For example, the same word is used across in chapter 31, verse 1. Did you notice it there? Chapter 31, verse 1. The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle. There's that word again. And I want to suggest that it's better off translated as a place name of Massa uh, because in Israel's history there's no such king as King Lemuel. He's never mentioned in one or two kings, one or two chronicles. And so people get a bit edgy about that. But if it's actually King Lemuel of Massa, that makes complete sense. Massa as a place is mentioned in Genesis 25. It's an Ishmaelite town, which would make him an Ishmaelite king, which therefore makes it no surprise that he's not mentioned in one or two kings or one or two Samuels. Samuel. But it's not just King Lemuel who makes more sense. I reckon Agur, back in, back in our chapter 30, makes more sense if he's an Ishmaelite as well, especially given what he goes on to say as he, search for, as he searches for wisdom. Look at verse 2 of chapter 30. I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, friends, that is exactly the sort of stuff you'd expect a Gentile to be saying in the Old Testament. Because a Gentile is a non-Israelite. They lived outside of God's revelation to Israel. A Gentile's background, their upbringing, they knew nothing about the God of Israel. They didn't know anything about the Exodus. They didn't know anything about the Ten Commandments or the law or Moses or any of that sort of stuff. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes Old Testament Gentiles as being far from God, outsiders of the promises of God. That is exactly what Agur sounds like here. He is a Gentile, an Ishmaelite, in Old Testament times. And he's searching. He's searching for the meaning of life. No wonder, he says in verse 4, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or the name of his son? Tell me if you know. 
See, the guy realises that if, he, he's, if he's become, going to become wise in the world, he's got to have a teacher who knows what he's talking about and you couldn't get any better teacher than the maker of the world himself. Or at least you need a teacher who, has to be, who is very close to the maker of the world. Perhaps he could get his son. His question though is, who on earth is that? Who has established the end of the earth? Who has gone up to heaven and come down? What's his name or the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Now, friends, at this point, some of us are probably sitting there bursting inside because, hey, I know, it's Jesus. Jesus is exactly the person that Agur is calling out to help for, help from here. Jesus, as we know, has come down from heaven. He is the son who has established the ends of the earth. This side of the cross, it's a no-brainer. We can see that. We know that. Spare a thought for poor Agur. He's on the other side of the cross. He's a Gentile living in northern Arabia, searching for the meaning of life in Old Testament times. But God is good. He does say that whoever seeks will find, and Agur finds. Verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now, the thing to note about those two verses is that they are quotes from other parts of the Old Testament. Verse 5 is a quote from Psalm 18. Verse 6, it's not so much a direct quote, but it's a very, very strong echo of Deuteronomy 4. In other words, think about it, Agur's search for wisdom leads him to the Old Testament. This Gentile Ishmaelite, Agur, is brought in his search for wisdom to the inspired scriptures of Israel. And there he discovers that the word of God is perfect, needs nothing added to it. Or to put it another way, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, a Gentile discovers a fear of the Lord. Because you see, I haven't mentioned it before now, but whenever we've read that reference throughout Proverbs, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It pops up all over the place, we've noticed. But it's always a fear of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Have you noticed that? And whenever the Lord appears in capitals like that in our Bibles, it's standing for Yahweh. It's the personal name of the God of Israel. This is the God who told Moses at the burning bush that they could call him Yahweh. And so when Proverbs has been telling, it, telling us over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's not the fear of any old God you might happen to believe in. It's been saying it's the fear of Yahweh that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the God of Israel that's the beginning of wisdom. It's coming to terms with the fact that he is the one and only true God. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's when you start to live life to the full and make sense of life. And so in his search for wisdom, that is what this Gentile discovers. Which is why he's such a great case study to have at the end of the book. This is, this is a really helpful display life to walk through and have a look at. Because the big idea is that he has found wisdom in the God of Israel, Yahweh. Here is a Gentile looking to be the best person he can be in this world and he finds it in the God of Israel, whose words are flawless and in whom we can take refuge. No surprise that having found that wisdom, 
the very first thing he goes on to say is how important it is to stick close to Yahweh. We've had his search, we've had him finding it. Here comes some lessons from wisdom. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you, O Yahweh. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you. And say, who is Yahweh? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonour the name of my God. Friends, here is a fellow who has come to understand that if the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, then the last thing you will ever want to do is drift away from Yahweh. The last thing you want to do is to disown Yahweh, disobey the God of Israel. And so Agur says here, look, I hope I never have so much money that it will seduce me away from God. And I hope I never have so little money that I'll be tempted to do something desperate and disobey God. Because if the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, then to disown him, to drift from him, to disobey him, that is foolishness beyond belief. And look, I'm wondering if it's at this point that this chapter offers us its most pertinent lesson. Because sure, the case study is going to keep going and you can keep walking through the display life and there'll be lessons, quite obscure lessons at points, but lessons about avoiding hateful speech and not giving in to insatiable desires and not underestimating the small things of life. And there's, there's other good things, but perhaps it's here, seven, verses 7, 8 and 9. I'm wondering whether that is the most pressing lesson of all, the very first one he gives. For if in the Old Testament this Gentile can feel so passionately about keeping close to Yahweh, how much more should we, us Gentiles, feel that about Jesus? Who, after all, is the one who most perfectly answers the Agur's questions about wisdom. Remember, Jesus is the one who really does come down from the he- heaven and who really does hold the wind in the hollow of his hands. How much more should you and I be echoing this sentiment that no matter what it takes, we're going to stick close to Jesus? Because to not is foolishness beyond belief. In 1923, Tokyo suffered the worst earthquake in Japan's history. Uh, It's been estimated that in just five minutes, the earthquake released more energy than all the energy released in the entire Second World War. 15,000 people, half the population of uh, Dubbo, 15,000 people were killed within the first two minutes. The aftershock and the fires that resulted went on to kill another 120,000 people. A staggering 2 million people were left without homes. And it could have been worse. Because right in the middle of Tokyo, surrounded by all this debris and collapsed buildings, right in the middle stood the Imperial Hotel, still standing. Ironically, the day that the earthquake hit was the actual day that the Imperial Hotel opened its doors for the first time. And it stayed up because it was built on special earthquake-resistant foundations that had been specially designed by the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And it stayed up and it provided shelter and it provided protection 
and it provided a base for food and it provided a base for medical treatment for thousands upon thousands of homeless people. Can you imagine knowing beforehand that the earthquake was about to hit and not wanting to take refuge in that building? Now, no one knew it was coming, but just imagine you did. Wouldn't you do whatever it took to make sure that you're in the safety of that hotel, on the safety of those foundations? Now, friends, as Christians, by the grace of God, we have a life built on the safe foundation of fearing Yahweh. And shouldn't we be doing whatever it takes to stay on the safety of that foundation? For not only is it the best foundation to be the best person you can be, but also a day is coming when every life built on any other foundation is going to come down. So I don't know about you, but with Agur I say, please, Lord, don't ever let me disown you or disobey you or drift from you. For there is no group of friends, no matter how persuasive, and there is no relationship, no matter how attractive, and there is no hobby or sport or pastime, no matter how much fun they seem, that should ever move us off that foundation. For who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has established the ends of the earth? Who is his name? What is his name? Tell me if you know. Friends, it's Jesus. And we never want to get off that foundation. In fact, if I can press it a little bit further to close with in a slightly different direction, and that is that since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, surely that not only means that we'll do whatever it takes to stick with our Lord, but shouldn't it also mean that we'll do whatever it takes to help other people know our Lord as well? To bring them under the benefit of building their lives on a firm foundation. Because imagine if you knew that the Tokyo earthquake was coming. Wouldn't you do whatever it takes to get your friends into the safety of that hotel? Onto the safety of those foundations? Of course you would. And look, I know many of you are exactly doing that. You want your friends to hear about Jesus. And you're a great encouragement. But I say this this morning to spur us all on to make the most of every opportunity, especially at this time of year. Because the Christmas showcase, the Christmas Day meetings, the lights, the carols, the hundreds of conversations that you are going to have about Christmas, the opportunity to give away a Christian book or some Christian music as a present, even just to give a card with some thought-provoking words on it, they are great opportunities to help our friends build a life on Jesus. And if we really believe that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, if we really believe that that is where we must build our lives, then we will do whatever it takes to stick with him and we will do whatever it takes to let others know about him. For in the words of a searching Gentile, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped all the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What's the name of his son? Tell me if you know. 
Do you know? Well, tell someone. I'll pray. Father, thank you that we have all that we need for life and godliness in you and your Son. Thank you for the firm foundation of building a life on you. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy that has enabled us to be part of your family, to be saved through Jesus, to fear you. Father, we pray that you would help us to never, ever drift from that foundation. And we pray that we would make the most of every opportunity, especially this Christmas, to help our friends and family build on that foundation as well. Amen.